Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership Podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Welcome back to How Soccer Explains Leadership. Thank you again for being a part of the conversation. I'm Phil Dark, your host, Paul Jobson. As I say every time, it's true again this time. He is always bummed when he's not able to do the interviews, but it's something that we get together every few episodes and we talk about these great conversations that I get to have. Today is no exception. I have Robbie Handy with me. He is a man who wears a few different hats. He's a, he's a husband, father. He runs a health and wellness business, and he is a former coach of William Jessup University, where I was able to coach a little bit this year. So it's kind of a fun little commonality there. But before we get into the actual conversation, I want to just remind you, if you haven't done so already, rate and review the show and share it with your friends. That's the best way we can get this show out there. If it's helping you, I have no doubt it will help those who are in your circle. So the best way to share things is word of mouth. Always has been, always will be, and we hope that you'll be able to do that to help us get this show out there to help more people because that's why we do what we do here. We want to help you and we want to help others. Also, if you want to get in touch with us to share guests that you know about, even if it's you, if you want to ask us questions, give us some comments, give us some encouragement. I always love to hear how it's helping you in the different things that you're doing. So if you could send me an email, phil at howsoccerexplainsleadership.com. You can also join the Facebook group, How Soccer Explains Leadership. We like to keep it simple for you around here. So without more from me in these preliminaries, Robbie Handy, how are you doing? Phil, doing good, man. I appreciate you having me on here and excited to be here, man. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation as well. We got to know each other. I think it was just Facebook. You, you'd made a comment or something. I forget what it was exactly. And then I saw that you coached at Jessup. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. Let's, let's, let's connect. You're also in my old stomping grounds. You've moved out to Nashville, Tennessee and just south of there. And, and, and you're running this health and wellness business. So I just love to hear from you, your story. Just briefly share your story with our, with our audience and who you are, how you developed your passion for soccer, for leadership, and now for health and wellness as well. Yeah, no, appreciate it. So grew up in Marysville, California, just north of where you're at currently. And uh, sports was just part of the family. So I grew up playing a wide variety. If it had a ball involved, I was all game and interested in it. Soccer was one of those growing up. And then it wasn't really until college that I would say, once I kind of got dialed in and realized making the jump from high school to college, soccer was kind of my best ticket. And so I ran with it. And that's really where I began to fall in love, I think, with the sport and gain a better understanding and just kind of dialed in with it. Had a great coach there who, again, increased my chances of understanding the game and loving it. And it was in grad school where I was trying to nail down how does sport and a career tie together. And so I started helping out coaching at Chico State as a volunteer while I was dabbling in some other things in the sport industry, marketing in particular. But that's where I fell in love and realized, man, what an opportunity I have to be with this group of young men and around this sport that I love. And that's where I think leadership really jumped in and began to grow as I was growing as a young man. And uh, looking back on my playing experience, I realized just what a pivotal moment that 18 to 22 year old mark, big decisions being made in my own life at that time. And here I am on the other side of it now with a different mindset, different skill set, and wanted to kind of pour back into that age group and coaching was an opportunity to do that. So started out Chico, ran there for a little bit, loved what I, you know, all that I picked up there, Felipe, I was underneath Felipe, who's still currently there as the head mm -hmm. coach, just a phenomenal man, gave me a ton of experience and room to kind of roam underneath him. 
and get my feet wet in the coaching realm. And I loved it and ate it up. And, and then that opportunity at William Jessup opened up for a head coaching job. And so I stepped into that. And again, a totally different experience in Chico, but loved it nonetheless and gained a lot of great relationships and experiences from that. And then stepped out of that eventually to go into Yuba College for some time there as well. Yeah. So as an assistant coach, as a, as a head coach, I've actually never been a head coach outside of my four-year-old daughter's team that I lasted for about 30 minutes because I did not have the patience to the, the ice cream trick that I had ice cream at the end of the practice. I actually said, we have ice cream and they all got the attention, you know, but I didn't actually have ice cream. So I actually lied to four-year-old children <laughs> to get their attention. And what I didn't know on top of it was that the coach, the the previous week actually brought ice cream at the end of practice. So I was not only a liar, but I was somebody that completely let them down on every level. So that was my head coaching experience. It lasted all of 30 minutes. But what, what did you learn from those different positions? I, I love being an assistant coach. I think there's a lot to it, but I want to hear from you. What are the differences, the different roles in, and what leadership lessons did you learn from both? Yeah, no, great question. And I, like you, Phil, I think now, especially now having done both roles, I do. I appreciate and value the time as an assistant. Um, at one point, I was looking at, at opportunities to go back to being an assistant because I felt like I hadn't learned all that I could have learned. It had nothing to do with Felipe and the head coach, just me as a growing as a person. But some differences that stood out to me, one would be ownership. There's a different level of ownership as an assistant coach compared to a head coach. And obviously, I didn't realize that until I became a head coach and it was mine. It was like, man, there was just a different level of investment, emotionally, physically, time commitment, all of that, that I poured in compared to being an assistant. The other one was learn how to follow, mm -hmm. right? You have your ideas and your philosophies, but as an assistant, at the end of the day, you're there to serve the vision and mission of the head coach. And so can you push aside your differences? Can you push aside your vision a little bit to support what that coach is going after? And I gained, I think underneath Felipe, one thing he really taught me two things, but one of them was he just really helped me always see the different side of the coin, the other perspective. He always like, we would talk about things, issues would come up in the, in the locker room and we'd have the talk in the office and he did a great job at just, yeah, but what, but what about this angle? What about this? You know, and it was just different perspective brought to the conversation. It helped me moving forward to kind of always try to look for those angles. Another thing I thought he did great, as you know, in college athletics, recruiting is a, is a black hole. It can be. Mm. And Felipe had a young family and he knew I did. Mine was growing at that time. And I thought he just did a great job of being competitive in our roles and responsibility and time commitment, but not letting them rule and reign in our life and losing our family at the expense of being competitive. And uh, so I really appreciated that as I was just had one kid at that time. And looking back, I thought he did a great job of teaching me that and how to do that and still be competitive on the field. Yeah, you know, one of the things you said there that I talk with a lot of people about in leadership is every leader has to be a great follower. You have to learn how to do that and you have to learn because what that does is it gives you that continual, we talk about it all the time on this show, that learning posture, that humble posture that if you think you know it all, if you think that your way is the right way all the time, you're not going to be open to learning how to be better how to actually flourish because we're not perfect. We have issues, we have problems. And when we're following, I think sometimes we're able to see them a lot clearer than when we're leading and people are just saying, oh, that's great, good job, you guys are awesome. Because when you're in that follower role, 
it's actually something that you can you can take a step back. You're not focusing on the minutia a lot of the times. You're able to have that 30,000-foot view that is needed a lot of the times. And, and I think that that is something that if the assistant sees it that way, it can be so powerful. And I think it ha- – but if, you, if the assistant's like, well, I just want the, the, the head coach role. Oh, man, I wish I was there because I would have done it this way, this way, this way. You miss so much. And I yep. think that's where you see some toxic cultures even is where that – assistant head role is you know most assistant coaches could be the head coach they're competent to be able to be a head coach and most assistants would probably do it differently than the head coach and that makes the best program I've seen is where the assistant is not just a yes man but is sitting there and going yeah I get I get that you're doing that but have you thought about this have you thought about this not a you're doing it wrong but a why are you doing it this way I'm just curious because I probably wouldn't have done it that way, but I know you have a reason to. So what is that? What, what, you know, let's learn from each other. Right. Have you, have you seen that even as a head coach and an assistant? Yeah. Felipe said a great example. He fostered that. He said, man, I don't want a yes, man. You're not here because that's what you did. I brought you in here because you bring a different perspective. You bring different experiences and I need your, cause you see things differently than I do. And so he always encouraged that. And I like to believe that I did the same when I, you know, stepped into the head role. I put people around me in pieces, trying to create a team of coaches mm-hmm. that had different skill sets, different strengths, and different perspectives. Because I knew I didn't have what it took to, to, took on my own to be the program that we wanted to be. But if I could put the right pieces into play and around me, then we had a better shot at it. So I tried to foster that as well. I hope I did. Um, yeah. Those coaches can only speak to that. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah, I had a I had a judge that I worked for and you know, I I was just out of law school and I I thought I was I thought I knew everything, right? Cuz I was I was this this guy who did well in law school and I got this clerkship with a judge and he was a federal judge in Hawaii and I'm like, you know, so I wrote this this opinion once, I took it to him and he and he sat me down and he said I'm going to I'm going to basically change the entire opinion. I don't agree with your conclusion and I was and so I I literally argued with a federal judge um in his chambers. And he looked at me and, and I was leaning up against his desk and I, I, he literally looked at me and he said, Phil, first of all, sit back in your chair. <laughs> and so I, I didn't even realize I was like, I was so tense and I'm leaning. And he says, Phil, here is the reality. A big part of my job, yes, it's to determine these cases, but a big part of my job as I see it is to teach you how to be a great lawyer and to teach you how to be a great man. And that has stuck with me in everything I do. This judge could have been an arrogant, you know what, but instead he sat there and he says, I'm a teacher. I'm here. I'm a mentor. Someone, I have a role in your life that's not just boss, but it's, and, and that, that stuck with me so much because if there was anyone who could be arrogant and I'm just here to tell you what's what, it's the judge in a federal yeah. courthouse. But he was a man who was humble, who said, you know, and he was, he learned from me too. There were times where I wrote something, he goes, I didn't even think about that, you know, and that, that was super encouraging to me too, right? So on that note, what was, you know, I, I say that because I've read some articles and I've seen some quotes from your players, but I want to hear 
your your answer on this. What was your coaching philosophy when you were the head coach at Jessup? I mean, you, you gave me a little bit of it as far as wanting to surround yourself with people who would compliment you and presumably who are smarter than you in some things. I'm not going to put words into your mouth. But what was your philosophy and what did you see your role as the head coach there at Jessup with the men's program? I think above all else, uh, I was there to raise in some sense, as much as a coach could raise up, but I was there to raise men before players, mm. right? And kind of like you talked about mentoring and teaching. And so I, I knew I wanted to see the results of that, the fruit of that until many years later, but that was my goal is how do I foster a culture here that teaches men how to be men and at the same time compete without compromising their character. At Jessup, we are a faith-based organization and a Christian university and somehow I saw a disconnect between being competitive and yet carrying Christ-like character. And I thought, we, you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, let's, let's be the most competitive person out there, but yet carry some character as well and not sacrifice those things. So that was kind of, I think, the overarching philosophy is raising men and players, you know, next, making the most out of what we had. I mean, I didn't think you had to teach somebody that you stepped on the pitch, you wanted to win. Like that was a given, I thought in my time, but more important was how did I teach them how to respond to the result that might be out of their control? Because could we focus, I saw and heard in the locker room, in practices, in clubs that I would sit and watch, observe and as I was recruiting, but so much time and energy was spent focusing on things out of their control. And I thought, man, what a waste. Like, how do I help these guys put their time and energy on things that they can control and the result will take care of itself. And then how, how do we view the result? And more importantly, is not necessarily control the result, but most importantly, how do we respond to the result? Win or loss, there's a, there's a healthy response in both of those. And so helping them kind of navigate those waters and the disappointments that come in competition and the victories and not letting the highs be too high and the lows be too low like how do I kind of minimize those was a goal of mine as a coach and helping them walk. And that, that wasn't always easy because that competitive spirit in each of us on that pitch. But um, at the end of the day, I thought that's what mattered. And I thought that's what they would carry with them long after their career was done. Cause I knew all of them, most of them were going to hang up their boots and move on to something else, but they would carry those, those lessons learned and those qualities with them, whichever direction they went in life. Yeah, that makes me think of a couple things. One is there's, you know, whether the, all the, a lot of these neuroscientists, you know, talk about the toxicity of the brain. It can either be a healthy brain or, or a toxic brain. And a lot of that is what we're feeding into it from our mind, right? I mean, that's a whole different conversation, but this idea of the mind and the brain are actually separate. And so that you're telling your brain different things. And that idea of, you can't control a lot of the things, but you can control your response to what happens, right? And that will determine a lot of your toxicity or healthy brain. And that then feeds on itself. And our brain is continually regenerating and it's, pla- it's the plasticity of the brain is an amazing, miraculous thing. And so to be able to do that and be able to teach that and train that is so massive. And, uh, you know, and the other thing, though, I'd be curious to, to, to ask, though, that, that, that's what, one of the things that just popped into my head. Nice light topic, of course, that, you know, whatever. But the other thing with that is, and this is something you talk about all the time in, in leadership, we talk about how do you measure success? Hmm. Right. So in that program, 
How would you say you measure success, even if it's after the fact, like now you're looking at it? You talked about it a little bit, but when it's, it's not simply wins and losses, how do you measure success? If, if, the, if your year-end review, they come and say, hey, you were you know, four and eight, that's a failure of a year, but you felt you were successful. How would you explain that? Whew. To my players, it would probably be one conversation. Um, and that's where I usually spent my time and energy was mm-hmm. what I had, what I owed them, right? And helping them navigate that conversation. But I took it from a mentor of mine only by book, not by in person, but John Wooden kind of shaped my coaching philosophy the most out of probably anybody. But, so I took the definition from him, but success just being measured with what did we do with what we had, right? Making the most because every circumstance looked different. And so did I, when taking into account preparation, execution, and then time spent reflecting, what did I do with what I had? And if I can look at myself in the mirror and say I prepared and did everything within my preparation, I executed at the highest level that I was capable physically and mentally. And then I took time to actually learn and look back and see what I did and what I can improve and what I need to take with me and leave behind. Then I could have a level of peace looking in that mirror and saying, I was successful today. I was successful this season. I did the best I could with what I had because you get into trouble when you start measuring and comparing with the person next to you. And we're so quick to do that as athletes, as coaches, in social in media, right? Win-loss record, this coach versus that coach's player. But the reality is there's so many variables that play into the success, the win-loss of that, of that moment, that it's so hard to compare apples to apples. And rarely is it apples to apples. So I tried to help just remind them because they were quick to do that as players. I've looked, man, this is what we had. This is what we did. Were we successful or not? Yeah. One of my favorite quotes out there, C.S. Lewis, I'm pretty sure it's C.S. Lewis, somebody told me it was, is comparison is the thief of joy. Mm, yeah. Right? And I think we do, we get caught up in the comparison game. We get caught up in how am I comparing to other coaches in my conference? How am I getting compared to the coaches that I know? How am I I'm comparing to my mentor, to my brother, to my sister, to my friend? Whatever it is, we tend to gauge our success based on others. Yeah. Rather than, as you said, what we are given and what we are doing the best with what we have, because the reality is I'm not you, you're not me. If I compare to you and say, wow, you're living in Nashville and you have this house and you're doing this business and wow, you're, you're hitting these numbers. Well, I'm just, I'm a loser. (laughs) I'm not doing anything near what you're doing. It's totally 100% different. So to say, but there, is, there are ways to, to gauge success. And what I used to always say with our community that we used to have in Honduras with the, the ministry that I run is, is we're not going to know whether we succeeded until 20 years from now when these kids are actually in society. Are they in marriages that are intact? Are they loving their children as moms and dads? Are they loving their spouses in great ways? Are they leaders in their community? Are they doing what they were created to do in amazing ways? Like those are the success measures. Yeah. Whether they get an A on the test, you know, that could have a lot of variables that I can't, you know, I can't judge each kid on success based on the grades or the this or the that test scores. There's so many variables that go into those things. So yeah, that's something that I totally agree with what, what you're just talking about there. And would you have, have you, have you thought about, do you have a personal why, why mm. statement, like a life purpose statement? No, I, I would say I'm currently trying to nail that down. 
as far as I think my future why. I know right now my why is to be the best possible that I'm physically, emotionally, again, taking all those things into mm-hmm. account that I'm capable of first as a husband and then in that order. And then as a father, I have four young ones and uh, just know right now, my mission in life is to pour into these four, raise them in all the things that I believe would be valuable in developing that relationship with them and just kind of helping them navigate these young years in their life. So that's where my time and energy goes. And, uh, but I would say at the end of the day, if you were to ask me fast forward 40 years, 50 years, what do you want to look back and, and say you did well? And do you want to regret? And I would never regret giving all my time and energy to my wife, to my kids and pouring out from there into the community and whatever else circles that I walked into. But that's my big whys to maximize that time because it is limited. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. So we mentioned at the beginning that your resume includes coaching. Yes, but it also includes running a health and wellness business. And so at some point you left William Jessup, which is in Rockland, California, and you are now south of Nashville, Tennessee. So at some point you stopped coaching. Why, why did you stop? And uh, what, what are you doing now? Yeah. So Jessup, I was hoping to have a 20, 30 year career, one job, head coach job. That was kind of my idea in my head. Uh, but it would not align with that. I wanted to stay there. My family was growing at that moment. It was a part-time financial role and it just wasn't going full-time. And so at that point, I believed God was kind of calling me out of there and stepping away. I didn't know into what, but I was just willing to obey and step. So I stepped away, let the next guy in to keep the program rolling after that season with no direction. So I got involved in substitute teaching as a job. And uh, then I was called about another coaching job in the at my local community at Yuba College. So I stepped into that temporarily, got involved there and spent some season. But during that time, that was my wife and I were going through kind of a transition of how do we create a life that gives us a little more freedom and control over our time and over our finances as we were looking to be together a little bit more as a family. And I just knew coaching college had a limitation in those areas that were of greater priority than coaching and winning and doing all that, which I love and I love competing. So it was hard to step away and be willing. So we started this health and wellness business to see what it could grow and develop into while continuing to coach at Yuba College. And it grew and eventually allowed me the opportunity to step away. So I stepped away from coaching and really just to be available for those kids uh, of mine that were growing. At that time, we had three and we added our fourth so I just wanted to be available, whether that meant teaching them in the academic realm, whether that meant coaching them on the sports field or taking them with me as I was beginning to travel a little bit more internationally, doing some mission things. I felt more of a draw there and wanted them to be able to be a part of that. But I knew that required time freedom and some financial freedom that I just didn't have quite to that extent. So went down that road and, uh, that, and my wife was on board as well. And she was desiring to come home. She was full-time in the hospital, helping manage the ER and we slowly, as the business grew, it allowed us the opportunity to bring her home as well. And so then the whole Nashville thing comes into play, which was not on our radar. My wife and I both were born and raised Marysville. All of our family within 20 minutes, life was good. We had no, we weren't trying to get out of there. But in November of 2019, individually, my wife and I both, God began to highlight Nashville, Tennessee for some reason. Mm. And it led to a series of conversations. One, it led to a trip out here to kind of explore and find out more. We'd have great clarity on why here and what specifically, even though we knew we could continue doing life 
here as we were there working from home. We were home, kind of a hybrid homeschool charter school with our kids. But we felt the peace and the unity of uh, stepping out and kind of in faith to come find out more and believing as we stepped out in that, that God would reveal more as we walked into that compared to revealing more from the comforts of our couch in California. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we did that. And uh, that's how we got here to Nashville. And now we just solely do run a health, remote health and wellness business where we help people get physically, mentally, and if needed or desired, financially healthy through this health and wellness. So how are you using what you learned through soccer as a player, as an assistant, as a head coach, as you're helping these clients? Yeah, it's, I mean, Phil, it's, I'm just dealing with a different age group, but you're mm-hmm. dealing with humans and humans bring all kinds of things, just like players brought their home life. They brought their academics. They brought their relationship issues to the field, right? And so this is the same. I'm just dealing with a different demographic. But I think one of the things that have served me best, that served me as a, as a soccer coach was first identifying through asking questions and listening compared to speaking, but listening and digging at their why. You asked me my why, but I want to know why is this important? Why does this matter to them? What's their motivator, right? Because the question is, if things get hard and difficult and hurdles, it's when, right? It's when when things come against you, what's to say you're going to stay continuing the course? And so that has helped me. And health is no different. People are going to have hurdles and obstacles that come at them regularly. And so the more we can identify and specify why this matters and why is this important and what are they going after, the more likely they are to stay the course and push through the adversity that awaits them. Yeah. I think as a player, there's the same. Absolutely. I think that that's something that, that I thought of when I was, as I was preparing for this, thinking about the different things. I mean, I've just started intermittent fasting, like the last week and a half, two weeks or whatever. I'm just getting into the groove, whatever. But the first few days, right? I mean, it's just like when a kid starts juggling, when a kid starts doing it, it, it's hard to do a new skill. And so how do you overcome? How do you motivate through that? I don't want to do this. Or if your kid's coming into college, hopefully they know how to juggle by then, but they may not be in shape. That probably happened quite a bit, right? So how do you get a kid into shape? It's really hard to get over those initial humps. You know, we all know running a mile for me, running anything is hard, but running that first mile is harder in a strange way, usually than the second, third, fourth mile, right? Once you get past that hump. And so I think to be, to take those lessons from sport and to be able to use those analogies in the midst of whatever it may be in any sort of health, wellness, mental training, things like that, the analogies from sport are massive, which is quite frankly, one of the big reasons why we're doing this show is to be able to help people see that, right? And so is there anything else that you, that even that jogs in you, as I say that, that, that makes you, I, I mean, I'm, there doesn't have to be, but I just was, was curious as I, as I was thinking through that, have you seen that with, with the people that are you using sport analogies? And maybe not, maybe it's not, but even if they're, I mean, presumably if they're sports people, you are, but have you, have you seen that overlap? I think the overlap there, there's some absolute, and I do work with some athletes and then a number of non-athletic backgrounds, but I think helping them identify like Daniel Pink wrote a book really talking about external motivators versus intrinsic motivators. Mm-hmm. And I like tapping into that and understanding and helping them 
because you're right, as an external coach, I can only get them so far. I can only do so much. But helping them identify the internal things that motivate them and drive them is going to be long lasting. So I thought, and that was mine as a coach. That was like where I spent a lot of my time is like, how do I tap into that? How do I ask the questions that stir those things and find their intrinsic motivation compared to externally? Because that's exhausting. Yeah. And it only has a, a certain shelf life. You know what I mean? Fear can motivate, but it can only motivate for so long. And so, and only go so far, but that internal, if we can tap into that. And so I try to use what I, I did with players there here with just clients in the health realm. And I, when they are able to do that, then I know the likelihood of them long-term success, man, it just goes up and up. Yeah, absolutely. That's that right there. What you just talked about is really that difference between have to and get to, right? If, if you have to do something, if it's duty, if it's guilt, if it's manipulation, if it's something like that, that will be a short-term gain that you'll, you'll get some stuff, you'll get some compliance, right? But if you want that long-term, it's got to be out of a get-to mentality. And again, C.S. Lewis, I quote him a lot because he's a pretty, he was a pretty brilliant dude. But he said, duty is a substitute for love. You would never, you know, it's basically a crutch. And you'd never use a crutch if you could walk on your own. Yeah. And you'd never use duty if you actually loved and in this instance, you would never use that duty, that have to, if you actually have a get to. It's a, such a different way to do things, you know? And so that's, that's basically what I heard there. I mean, is that what you're saying? I don't want to put words yeah. in your mouth, but yeah. So. No, that's good. That's a great way to put it. And C.S. Lewis, he really has a way with words, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, he sure did. He sure did. Yeah. So, you know, I remember, I mean, just with my kids, if, if they do the dishes on their own, they have a joy when they see that mom and dad are, are happy. But if I ever ask them, or tell them they need to do the dishes at any given point. It's like World War III breaks out in our house, you know? So <laughs> it's sure. amazing the human psyche, right? I mean, how it's it's no different with six-year-olds, eight-year-olds than it is with 80-year-olds, right? It's just, if you tell someone they have to do something, most people, it just doesn't sit quite right. Whereas if you say, hey, we get to do these things. It's pretty amazing. Just yeah. that it's a gratitude that comes out of that. It's a, an ability to go, wow, I'm able to walk. We don't even think about that, right? I'm able to breathe. Wow, I mean, we had the fires here recently and we couldn't go outside because the smoke was so bad. You know, when I went to Delhi, India, we had, you know, it was like 700 on the air quality index. It was crazy. But to then get a fresh air day, you're like, wow, the wind shifted. This is amazing, right? We, we take things for granted, right? So to be able to see that is, is amazing. So, you know, that, that brings us to the last couple. That was a similar question to these last couple, but the, the questions we ask all of our guests, I mean, the first is, what are, what are a couple of lessons you learned directly from the game of soccer that you have used in your marriage and your parenting? Man, yeah, as I was thinking about that, an instant jumped out to me as a coach with a, with a player, and he really taught me a great lesson that I, I hadn't learned at that point yet. And communication was the key, but he had just shared with me. I could obviously see the body language wasn't happy. His playing time, I just associated it with. He wasn't starting, which was typical with players, right? And just that battle between starting, subbing, and seeing their value and all that. But through a conversation with him, I just learned, like, if I would have given some more time to communicating with him and given him more context to where I had landed in my decision, that would have squashed it. It would have been enough. It wasn't necessarily the result that was frustrating. It was the gap with that the communication that I had failed to share. And so I've seen that when I get into issues in my marriage, in my relationship, when I see a disconnect 
in my parenting with one of my kids, which there's plenty. So I have a lot of moments to learn. I'm a little slow learner, but God's just seen me as a, he's going to get a lot of chances here, but it's usually boils down to Phil is my inability to communicate in a way, whether it's giving enough information, saying it clearly to where they can understand and comprehend at the, the age, because I have various ages. Is it me willing to open up and be vulnerable and share with my wife what really is bugging me? You know, and how we, and I'm just learning, seeing how many issues I could have bypassed if I just would have communicated a little differently, more effectively, a little more. Yeah. And we see that in the game itself too, right? Like if you're not communicating with your, if two center backs aren't communicating, they're going to run into each other or any defenders, right? They're, they're, if you're not communicating, the keeper doesn't say keeper, and they run into each other, and they bang, and then the, the striker just has an easy walking goal, right? There's, there's so many times you see in the game where communication doesn't happen and bad things happen. Oh. And then the, other, the flip side of that coin, when communication is happening, when you have a keeper who actually organizes the defense and the midfielders and is, is kind of, when I was in high school, I talk, I talk a lot. I mean, anybody who listens to the show, you realize I talk a lot. But I had my, my players in high school who would say to me, like, you're part of our brain when we're playing. Mm-hmm. When you're not back there, like, if, we, if I didn't play a second half or if I didn't do whatever, they'd be like, we're not quite all there. It's a little off because I was, I was constantly talking and sharing and, you know, I'm a student of the game and I have been pretty much my whole life. So it's to help them understand where they can go, what they can do, how they can do it. Right. And that's part of it too, where you have that communication. It seems to be more of a well-oiled machine when you have that and there's trust too. Right. So I think that's the key too. There needs to be trust. I developed trust by when I said things, they knew it was, they found it to be true. When I said, you have time, I didn't say that. And they turn around and they have a dude right on them. And so I think that with your kids, that with your players, if you don't develop that trust and earn that conversation, you can't just be an absent dad till they're 15 and all of a sudden show up and be like, now you got to be a man. Here's how you be. They'd be like, who are you? Right. And what are you talking about? Right. Yeah. And with those players, you got to earn the trust. You got to earn the respect. You got to earn the credibility with your kids. You need to do the same thing, folks, with your wife, with your, with your husband, if you're a woman listening, you need to earn that conversation and that, and when you break that trust, it's hard to earn back, right? Like, so, and sometimes you can break trust by not communicating. Yeah. Right? Oh, so. yeah. That, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was John Maxwell said, people don't care what you have to say until they know that you care. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing there a little yeah, bit, gotcha. but it's until they know that you care about them, it really doesn't matter. You'd be saying all the right things, but once they understand your heart is in the right place and you care about their well-being and who they are, then the ears open up and they become a lot more attentive to what you're saying. And I was thinking about your story of soccer. I didn't know until I started coaching, but then I realized, wow, communication. I was a defender by trade at the college level, typically an outside left and right. Senior year, coach needed a center back, so he moved me to the back. And uh, athletically, I knew where I measured up with the competition. Like we'd measure up 40 times and not such. Mm-hmm. And I was always at the bottom athletically. Like I was, I, it wasn't speed and skills and talents that was keeping me in the game. And it wasn't later until I realized like, oh, it was my ability, one of my abilities to communicate. And I realized how many obstacles we could avoid with just simply using my voice and communicating, moving pieces ahead of time. And really looking back on my playing career, I realized like I was able to do that to a decent degree that allowed me physically to keep up with everybody when maybe I couldn't just rely on some of that pure talent and athleticism. So 
Absolutely. And that's usually the people who become the best coaches. That's usually the people who aren't able to, who don't just have that raw, incredible, like I'm just an amazing athlete who can do whatever. I mean, I'm a five, eight goalkeeper for crying out loud. So I had to rely on that. If I didn't organize the defense, I got a lot more shots on me. If I got a lot more shots on me, we'd get more goals scored on us. We, we still have the shutout record at my high school, which is a very good high school in South Orange County, California. Because, well, first of all, I don't even know if they even play that many games anymore, but we had 19 shutouts in a year. And it, I attest all of it to the fact that we had an incredible defense and I was able to communicate with them because yeah. my technique wasn't great. My, you know, like if you look at it, it's, it's just I knew where to be in the goal. I had good footwork, good positioning, and I led the team. And so every keeper I coach, I tell them that, look, I don't care if you're 6'4", if you're not having good positioning, good footwork, leadership of your team, you're not going to be a great goalkeeper. Right. And so I don't care what your technique looks like, because the reality is you get two to three shots a game that you have to really dive and save most of the time yeah. in, a, in a pretty busy game. Most of them, if you're in the right position, it comes right to you or they miss the goal. And so anyway, that's a whole different conversation. But it goes to the point, though, if we are able to communicate, we can avoid a lot of problems. We can prevent a lot of problems and we can actually take care of a lot of problems by communicating well. And also, by the way, probably the most powerful word for our kids and for our spouses is the words, I'm sorry. When we mess up, we have that opportunity to be able to say, I'm sorry, and ask for forgiveness, which is super powerful, especially for our kids to see that and hear that from us as fathers. So I'm sure you've said that a few times in your day too, I imagine. Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So... All right, man. Well, we're winding down and uh, it's always bittersweet for me to ask this last question. I always love hearing the, the answers, but it means that we're at the end of our conversation. But the answer or the question is, uh, what have you read, watched or listened to that has informed your thinking on how soccer explains life and leadership? First book that jumps out to me with soccer, read this early on and read it a number of times in my coaching career was called The Messiah Method. Mm. That's by Michael. I don't know if you've heard of that one, yep. read it yourself. I have. I was looking for it. I think it's in my in my backpack right now because I'm reading it and hoping to get Zigarelli on the show here pretty soon. So anyway. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I actually jumped on a call with Dave Brandt at one point, the men's coach he yep. talked about. And then uh, anything John Wooden and John Maxwell that I could get my hands on as far as leadership and philosophy of a program were very instrumental in shaping, you know, my philosophy, my leadership and what I desired, you know, the outcome of that program and those guys to look like. So, yeah, now that's a fantastic, uh, fantastic book. I strongly recommend it as you just did Messiah method. Obviously those other guys, I mean, amazing. We wouldn't, we had a whole series on this, the lessons that Wooden teaches. And I did a couple off-season talks we had on the, the seven life lessons that he had. And it's just rules for life, I think is what he called them. But he got them from his dad. Wooden's amazing. Maxwell obviously is a, a man who is a, a great leader. But anyway, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for the encouragement. I know you brought me just in our in our short conversations we've been able to have. I look forward to future conversations, but thanks for sharing with our audience just how you've learned a ton from this game and how you're using it. Thanks again. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Phil. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, once again, hopefully you've learned a lot from this uh, this conversation. Hopefully you're going to be able to use it in your coaching. Hopefully you're going to be able to use it in your in your life outside of coaching or or leadership of organizations or whatever you're doing as a leader in your home, as a parent, as a spouse. 
just hope that you're learning from this show what I'm learning, being able to do these interviews. And I, and I hope, as we always talk about, that you're continually learning more and more that soccer does explain life and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.